My friends, welcome back to the Bible Project Daily Podcast. We're in Season 3, and we're well into the Gospel of Matthew in our journey together through the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. If you're here for the first time, then why not hit on that subscribe button wherever you're receiving your podcasts from, and that way you too can make the decision to have your life transformed by making the study of the Bible part of the rhythm of your daily life from here on in. You can pick up where we are today, we're nearly 500 episodes in, or you can just choose to go right back to the beginning and do the whole journey together at whatever pace suits you, however long it takes, as together we can work through the whole Bible. So with that said, I'll launch off in a minute and pick up where we finished off last time, but do hang on at the end where I'll tell you lots of ways you can connect to this ministry and also have access to lots of other free discipleship and Bible teaching courses. So with that said, bye-bye for now. Okay, people, we're picking up in Matthew chapter 19, and we're going to be dropping back into the scriptures at verses 10 to 12. And this is an unusual little passage, an unusual illustration that Jesus uses in order to get us to think about Well, asking the question really, responding to the question really, how should one live one's life? And if one chooses to be single, can we live a godly single life? So let's just jump off straight away with the reading, picking up at Matthew 19, verses 10 to 12, where it tells us, His disciples said to him, If such is the case of the man and his wife, is it better not to marry? So remember, he's just been talking about marriage, and how important it is, and how permanent God meant it to be. And their response is to say, well, if that's the case, is it better not to marry? And Jesus then says, but he replied to them, all cannot accept this, saying, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born thus from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He who is able to accept it, let him accept it. Now to fully appreciate what's going on here in these three verses in Matthew chapter 19, we need to tie it in with what has just happened prior to these verses and what we've discussed over these last few days. If you recall, if you've been with us on the journey so far, you will recall in the last couple of days, we saw this chapter open with the Pharisees coming to Christ and they were trying to test him. Actually, what they wanted to do was they were trying to trip him up, at least in the eyes of the people and the political authorities of that day, by dragging him into an intense cultural debate which was going on that time. Sexual morality was a hot potato in that time as it still is today. In fact, you'll remember John the Baptist was actually killed. The reason he was killed ultimately was for speaking out against the divorce of Herod and the past, and that had got him killed by Herod. So here they bring up the subject of divorce, knowing full well that what he would say would potentially get Jesus into trouble with the religious leaders and the, and the political leaders of that day. 
You see, in those days, as we discovered, there was an attitude that you could get a divorce for just about any reason at that time. But Jesus, in his answers, gave a much firmer interpretation of the scriptures, arguing that from the beginning, when God first instituted marriage, he intended it to be permanent. And while he may have made exceptions where God would allow divorce, yet still the principle that God originally intended marriage to be permanent. Now, when the disciples heard this, they respond here by asking, well, does this mean if marriage is meant to be so permanent that perhaps it's better not to marry and stay single? In other words, they were asking, as apostles, as disciples, is the single life better for us than the married life? Now, in order to appreciate what's really going on here, we need to understand what was going on in that day. So the backdrop to the question is, In a sense, it appears your interpretation of marriage makes divorce very restrictive and maybe, as disciples, we'd be better off not getting married in the first place. Now, what would Jesus say to that question? Well, we don't have to wait long to find out, but Jesus' response is really interesting, quite curious in this day and age because of his use of the term eunuchs. But he, in a sense, he's saying, well, the single life is not for everyone. But let's just pause right there for a second before launching in and get and understand the underlying principle here is that he is actually saying there's not one rule that applies for everyone. Not everyone can even handle staying single. So he's definitely saying that whoever wants to can and should get married. What's really fascinating for me, which you can draw out from this passage, apparently there are some who are given what are described as an ability to stay single, and I guess that means you could call singleness a gift for some people. This very subject was discussed by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where he discussed marriage and celibacy. And of course, in doing this, he famously said this, For I wish that all men were even as myself, but each one has his own gift from God, one in this matter and one in another. So Paul also seems to be saying that indeed the single life can be better for some, but then he goes on to say that although he wishes all men were like himself, of course Paul was single, but yet each has his own gift from God. So Jesus is saying here the call to singleness has to be given to you, and Paul actually uses the word gift it is a gift so that tells me that there are some who have the gift of remaining single in order that they can focus their lives on other things now all kinds of questions pop into my head when i hear passages like this but jesus here will go on to explain this to some degree and in first corinthians 7 which i don't have time to go into now paul will also go on to explain in some life how he would apply that concept that sometimes in some cases celibacy is a better choice for an individual. But let's go back to Matthew chapter 19 and look at Jesus's explanation here. In verse 12 he chooses to do it by giving us three illustrations of celibacy. The first he describes as eunuchs which is a catch-all term for what we would today call celibacy We can make that assumption because of the fact that he describes them in this three ways. So first he says there are those who are born that way from their mother's womb. They are 
celibates who were actually made eunuchs by other men. That's number two. And third, there are those who have chosen to make themselves celibate for the kingdom of heaven's sake. I want to just look very briefly at these three situations in which these people who are celibate and should be celibate, bearing in mind that the word eunuch is used here in the sense of what we would today call celibacy. There are three types of celibacy, according to Matthew. The first one are nature-made. Jesus says that these people are born this way from their mother's room. It's true to say that some people are born and they're not capable of human reproduction. And as such, they're not suited for marriage. Well, certainly they're not suited particularly for first century Jewish marriage, where the whole purpose of marriage was to produce children. So this group is the people who are naturally celibate, if you like. The second group are men who have been made that way by other men. The term eunuch, in our minds, very much applies to this situation, but it was also a term that that time was used to describe any person who was voluntary or involuntarily celibate. The aspect of eunuch being described here, the second aspect, is sort of foreign to anything we know today, anything that we experience in this time. But in the first century, this was very common. You see, the Roman rulers had harems, and people of that time had harems, and men were put in charge of those harems, and those men were castrated so that they were, how shall we say, qualified to watch over the women in the harem. So in that sense, they were man-made celibates. Now, we don't really have anything like that today, but in that day, Jesus is simply saying that some celibates are natural-born and that there are some people out there who are man-made, that they have been made that way by the decisions, probably not even of their own, but it was probably done in childhood, of other men. And then the third category says there are those who are self-made. They voluntarily decide to make themselves celibate for the kingdom of God. So they are voluntary celibates. This means people choosing to remain single for spiritual service. And I think that's basically what Jesus is talking about here, especially in the light of what Paul will later say in Corinthians chapter 7, which many actually say is a commentary on Matthew chapter 19. Jesus is simply saying that some people voluntarily refrain from getting married for the kingdom of heaven's sake. So to sum it up, there are some celibates who are natural born, some who are man-made in a sense, and some who are self-made. Bible experts actually say John the Baptist was probably single, and there's a tradition that John the Apostle was single. I have personally have known many people have chosen to say single for spiritual reasons. They certainly weren't nature-made, and they certainly weren't man-made, but they were self-made in the sense that they chose not to get married so that they could focus their lives on the service of God. They did it so that they could give themselves over entirely to spiritual service, and by staying single, they took it for granted that this meant they would not be engaging in sexual relationships. Now, these people did not make that decision as young people, they're people who reached a mature age in life when they decided that this was the path that God was calling them to. 
So the sum of this teaching is straightforward, really. This passage is teaching that celibacy can, in fact, be a gift. It's certainly not for everyone, but somebody who decides to remain celibate for spiritual reasons so they can serve the kingdom of God is indeed a good thing. But what does that have to do with most single people who might be listening to this today? What about all of you who are single and would aspire to get married one day? This teaching for those of us who are already married, in a sense it's too late. We can't choose to live the celibate life now within a marriage, unless of course that's what you both want. That's perfectly acceptable. But what in a way this passage is helpful to most is what can we glean from this passage? What can we all learn from this passage? But remember the context with which in this passage sits all the way back to first one. And in the first part of the passage, Jesus was reacting to the Pharisees and teaching that marriage was intended by God. It should aspire to be a permanent thing. So it seems to me that one of the implications we can all draw from this message is if you're not married and if celibacy is not for you and if you want to get married then you should absolutely choose your mate carefully because this is a permanent commitment you're going into. And if you're single and you've never been married and you want to be married then maybe you should come up with a list of what you want from the partner in your life and the first thing on that list ought to be that you should marry a believer. That's mentioned several times throughout the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul speaks about a widow and says she's free to marry whosoever she will, but only in the Lord. So the scripture very clearly says that if you're a believer, you should marry a believer. The verse that usually gets quoted in this regard is from 2 Corinthians chapter 6, which says, don't be unequally yoked together. Now, of course, that passage in itself is talking about much more than marriage. It has a wider remit than that. It's talking about all types of committed contractual relationships. But I do think the principle also applies to marriage because of what Jesus says here in, in Matthew chapter 19 about what God has joined together or what God has united as it's sometimes translated. It's interesting to note that the word that is used to be translated that way is also the word that is translated in 2 Corinthians as yoke. So while the context in 2 Corinthians is a little different, marriage is still seen to be defined as a solemn covenant partnership explained in the image of being united and pulling together in the same direction. The point being that you should not be unequally yoked to an unbeliever. So basically the one thing I can say for sure if you're an unmarried Christian believer who wants to be a married Christian believer, is that you should marry another believer. Of that, we can be absolutely sure. If you think about it, if you're going to live with that person for the rest of your life, well, let me tell you some of the characteristics that should describe someone that is a believer, someone that is a disciple of Christ and is growing in the fruit of the Spirit. The person should be loving, joyful, patient, long-suffering, gentle, good, reliable, faithful, self-controlled, and yet at one and the same time having all these personality traits but having them with a sense of humility. 
Now, I'm not saying that they have to be perfect, but it's better, surely, to marry someone that's committed to growing spiritually in that direction. Not that they've arrived at that place, but that they at least have a spiritual sense of direction about them. Then they're much more likely to be sacrificial in their love and service of you and each other. They're less likely to be selfish. They're much more likely to be a giving person instead of a taking person. And if you're going to spend the rest of your life with this person, why would you aspire to want anything else? All relationships should be built on trust and respect. And if you're going to know that the person that you're choosing, well, if you know they're not trustworthy and you don't respect them, well, in my opinion, you should not just think twice, but you should think three times before even thinking about getting yoked, so to speak, with anyone like that. If you don't respect them and you don't, in a sense, look up to that person and you don't wholly trust them, then I would simply say recognise that they're not marriage material. The more compatibly you are spiritually and emotionally, the better the chances are you have of making it. People who have that type of spiritual compatibility are much more likely to complete the journey. And what I mean by that compatibility is that you have the same value system. But we also have to recognise that marriage life doesn't apply to everyone or is even best for everyone. As Christians we rightly value marriage but we should also value those who are or who choose to be single and that's what this passage is ultimately saying. It's saying there's nothing wrong with being single. And because the Bible says there's nothing wrong with being single then putting pressure on people to get married even your own children, is actually wrong. If they want to get married, it is pressure enough for them to find someone suitable in this spiritual and moral climate without you adding to it. But in terms of singleness, we need to go beyond just accepting single people. In fact, I think most Christians really need to make a little attitude adjustment towards single people and understand that it is perfectly normal to be single. Jesus makes that explicitly clear here. In fact, he said some should stay single for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. I think the definitive passage on this is 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where Paul discusses celibacy and explains why some should stay celibate. Let me just quickly read that passage for you. But I want you to be without care. He who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But he who is married also cares about the things of the world and how he may please his wife. There is a difference between a wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman cares about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy, both in body and spirit. But she who is married also cares about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. And this, I say, is for your profit. Not that I put a leash in you, but for what is proper, and that you might serve the Lord without distraction." So he's saying there's nothing wrong with getting married, that's not the point, but Paul is showing here that there are good reasons why some people consider staying single. Paul says, if you're a married husband or wife, then both of you are going to have to spend time pleasing your partner. But if you're single, you aren't restricted in that way, as Paul says, with the proper obligations of marriage. So celibacy, in Paul's mind, can sometimes be preferable because of the obligations that we must discharge in marriage. Singleness can free you up and give you more time to serve the Lord, and that's the point here. 
single people can serve the Lord without distraction because they don't have to fulfill their proper married obligations. So that leads me to the conclusion that the implications of the whole discussion in Matthew chapter 19, backed up by 1 Corinthians 7, is that both married people and single people ought to use their time available well for the kingdom of heaven's sake. And indeed, single people might in fact have a little more time. So if you're single, you will have a little more time than everybody else to serve the Lord. But I think the bottom line of the passage is that we all need to re-examine how we spend our time. If Paul and Jesus can both argue that some can be celibate so that they can have more time, maybe that should challenge the rest of us to examine the way and how we use the time we have available right now. Let me throw out a challenge. Why don't you make a commitment to study the Bible and make the study of the Bible part of the rhythm of your daily life? Why don't you make the decision to make a time of prayer part of the rhythm of your daily life? Now, you know I would say this. You can do this, the Bible part of this, with me every day as we work through the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. To meet that commitment, you can just subscribe and you'll never miss another single episode. But there are plenty of other great useful prayer and Bible study resources out there. Why not commit to do that? And I would like to finally say that living a celibate life should not or never be confused with monasticism, with which it has been sadly associated greatly in the past. Celibacy, as discussed by Jesus, as explained by Paul, in no way implies withdrawal from people or withdrawal from normal life to a life of seclusion. In fact, one of the very positive attractions of celibacy, as presented here, is that because the single person has fewer continuing commitments and responsibilities, they are then free to give to those around them to help people and to support people in love and in compassion. So instead of having limited contact because of celibacy, celibacy can offer a life of increasing involvement with people and their lives, people who need time, attention and love, people even in emotional or physical distress and people who are outsiders, as we saw illustrated within the greater context of this passage already. I do not believe that 1 Corinthians chapter 7 or Matthew chapter 19 is in any way a call to seclusion or isolation from other people. Rather, it is in fact ironically the exact opposite. It is a call to an intense involvement with people. In Paul's case, that meant increasing involvement with supporting the early church as well as his own personal time with the Lord. And we all have seen the fruits and benefit from that in all the teaching he has made available to us. But you know what? In conclusion, I think the real thing we can learn from this passage is that we all need to sit down and examine how we use our time and see how we can carve out some more time and say, I'm going to use this time well for the Lord's sake. And that should surely be a good thing, not only for us, but for the church and the communities which we serve.
Okay, people, that's it for today. I do hope you find that helpful. Make sure you join us again tomorrow and we'll continue working through this this amazing passage of Scripture. A quick reminder that there is always a transcript available on the episode notes page of every episode of this podcast, as well as links to lots of ways you can connect to this ministry and have access to free Bible teaching and discipleship type courses and resources. Please have a look at those links there and have a click around and see how else we can help you. If you're not seeing active links because of the platform you're using to listen to this podcast from, then no worries. You just realize the podcast is hosted on the bibleproject.buzzsprite.com and you will definitely find all the links active there and the transcript of each and every episode available there. Everything I do is always entirely free, copyright free, In other words, free for you to use in whatever way you find helpful in your own personal study time. Whatever way you want to use this teaching, do so with my blessing. But with that all said, thank you so much for joining me. I do hope you're enjoying our time together and I plan to see you. Well, it will be tomorrow for me, but it will be whatever day you choose, at whatever pace you choose, to access the next episode of the Bible Project Daily Podcast. Bye-bye for now.